All right, well, good morning, guys. My name is Steve. Uh, I am the lead pastor here, and um, I want to welcome you this morning. We're going to be finishing up a sermon series entitled Consecrated, and, uh, and so to get us started, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's flip over to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chair in front of you. They are distributed throughout the room, and uh, in our Bibles, we're going to be going to page 1016. 1,016. All right, while you're flipping over there, I know some of you are already, especially you detail-oriented people, are like, Steve, wait a minute. That's not the passage in the bulletin. I know. (laughs) Believe me. Um, About 8 o'clock last night, um, just was struggling, honestly, struggling with the text and struggling. Uh, And so I started praying. I'm like, Lord, am I supposed to preach something else? And the answer was yes. And so um, we're in a different passage this morning. Um, and, uh, and I trust that's because the Lord has something for us here. Um, and so we'll talk more about the Philippians passage in coming weeks. Um, I really believe the Lord's been shaping some things that are going to be exciting for us there. But here's the thing. We know as a church that God's bringing us into a new season, right? This is our third week in our new building um, there's a lot of things going on. There's, uh, we're meeting a lot of new people and, and hearing a lot of new stories, and um, our community is growing, and it's exciting, and it's a season of, of blessing. And so this sermon series that we've entitled Consecrated really was, was our way of saying, how do we prepare our hearts to engage this season of blessing? How do we engage our hearts and, and prepare so that... Um, not necessarily, we don't get more from God, but we experience more of God uh, in, in community and, and as we're following. And so, um, as you're flipping over there, I wanted to, uh, to give you a little hint of where we're going next week. As Next week, we're going to begin a new sermon series called Unshaken. And um, that sermon series is going to be looking at how we can find strength and comfort and peace in turbulent and unsettled times, right? Uh, our culture right now is... It's just off the charts anxious. It already was before the election season ever started, and that has just amped it up. Anxiety's off the charts. Everyone seems angry about something. Uh, and it feels like things shift so quickly. Um, man, whether it's, it's a, the news of a new tragedy or, or something else to be um, uh, offended about or something else to defend, or there's just so many ways that we're being pushed on and... Um, challenged, and here's the thing, man. I think some of us feel a little helpless in this whole thing. Like, the best thing we can do is just ride out the rapids and hope we don't get tossed out of the boat, right? I think we can do better than that. I think we can do better than that. Um, I think we can find security that isn't rooted in this world, uh, security that isn't rooted in our, our culture, that we can really find joy and hope um, when everyone just seems like they want to yell at each other. And sometimes we want to yell too, right? And so um, this sermon series is, is going to be digging into a faith that grounds us, a hope that lifts us, and a joy that strengthens us so, so that we can be lights in a dark culture, so that we can find a security that's not found on the shifting sands 
of the world around us, right? I, I think that it's going to be encouraging and strengthening. Um, so that's starting next week. Now, next week's also kind of our grand opening, right? We've been in our space now for three weeks. We have been working like crazy, working out the kinks. Um, we're not there yet. Uh, we still sound like we're a little bit in a tin can here. Uh, we're still working on acoustics. We're still working on setup. We're still doing all this stuff. But next week is kind of the, the big grand opening. And so we'll be kicking off the new sermon series. Um, and then at 1230, right after the second service, we're going to be having a cookout out front. So we're going to be grilling and eating, and, and we're going to have bags set up, and, and we're going to have inflatables over here um, for the kids and, and the big kids, right? I made sure that we had not only bounce houses for the tinies, uh, but obstacle courses for the biggies, right? Um, when I was a principal at the school, man, I made sure every time we had one of those huge events that I personally went and tested all the inflatables <laughs> before the kids. Um, and I know how important it is that we big kids have the ability to have fun too. And so make sure you, you just make this, make it, just come join us. It's going to be a party. Uh, we have a bunch of flyers, uh, the overrun from our mailers. And um, if you want to invite somebody, um, if you want to just give it to a neighbor or whatever, we have those. So please take those. Feel free to, um, to invite some friends. Uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. All right, let's take a look at our text. We are in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17, starting in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The word of the Lord. All right, so this morning we are wrapping up our sermon series called Consecrated. And, um, and just to remind you, the word consecrate means to devote to a holy purpose, to devote to a sacred cause. And, and, and we're talking about consecrating ourselves. What does it look like for us to, to devote ourselves, to consecrate ourselves, to set ourselves apart um, for a, a, a sacred cause, right? We've been asking as a church over the last eight weeks um, through a season of fasting and prayer, we've been asking God to, to give our community revival, which is a, an old term religious thing that, that I think a lot of people misunderstand. But revival, very simply, is, is God doing what he always does in the work of the gospel, like freeing people and, and giving them joy and igniting their hope and, 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 and changing them from the inside out, right? So it's gospel doing what the gospel always does, but doing it at an increased pace and over a greater space. So we've been praying for revival, that God would do what God always does, but, but, a, but a, in a season of, of, of increased pace and over a, a greater space. Now here's the thing, we can't make God bring revival, but we can prepare our hearts for it. And so over the last six weeks, we've been looking at, at consecrating ourselves. We, we looked at the first week and consecrating ourselves to prayer. We talked about prayer and fasting. We talked about consecrating ourselves to purity. We talked about the importance of confession and repentance. We, we talked about consecrating ourselves to service. 
and how important it is to, to use the gifts that God has given us to be a blessing to others. We, we talked about being consecrated to the Spirit. How being filled, be, being filled with the Spirit is this, this uh, experience of, of just coming near to God through the, the presence of the Spirit on a, on a regular basis. And last week, uh, Kempton brought us uh, to, to being consecrated to the Word, right? Valuing and entering into the Word of God. And um, this morning, uh, what I want to do is kind of wrap this up. Here's the thing. The greatest gift God can give us is Himself. I think a lot of times we miss that. We get so focused on the gifts we want God to give us, we forget that the greatest gift He can and has given us is Himself, that, that He is the one that actually meets our deepest needs, that His presence satisfies our deepest appetites, and, and, and that His presence actually frees us to enjoy His gifts instead of use His gifts to try to get what only He can give. Right? Instead of just running on the treadmill of, of success or, or uh, affirmation or trying to get people's approval, right? The greatest gift God can give us is Himself. And so this morning, I want to call us to consecrate ourselves to delighting first in God. And if we're going to do that, it means we're going to have to deal with the fears that drive us and the hopes that draw us. So take a look at verses 13 and 14, verse 17. Uh, in verses 13 and 14, he says, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Down in verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. All right, I want to be very clear. God never promises a life free from suffering. Right? There are people that are like, Hey, when you follow God, He's going to solve all your problems. He's going to solve your greatest problems. He's going to set you free in beautiful and powerful ways, but that doesn't mean that, that you're not going to suffer along the way. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have challenge and pain and difficulty, right? We live in a world of suffering because it's a broken world that is experiencing the consequences of our rebellion against God. And sometimes when it comes to suffering, we're our worst enemies, aren't we? I mean, sometimes a lot of the suffering we experience, we bring on ourselves, you know what I'm saying? Like, we just make selfish choices. We say stupid things. We, we, we get a little too puffed up in pride and a little too condemning of others. And, and as a result, um, we create our own problems. Um, we do dumb things. <laughs> we hurt people and suffering results. Now, here's the thing. God can redeem even suffering. It's one of the beautiful things about the gospel, is that God will redeem all suffering, right? And, and, and here's the thing, God will work some of his greatest breakthroughs in our lives as a result of our greatest failures. That's incredibly good news. You can't mess it up so bad that God can't fix it. You, you cannot derail the train so that it doesn't reach its destination. God will work even through your failures to produce growth and change and success. But Peter's point is this. Hey, if you can avoid that kind of suffering, it's a good idea to do it. Let's start there. Like, avoid stupid suffering, right? Just do your best not to compound it, right? Don't, don't act stupidly if you can avoid it, right? Try to repent before you do the harm, 
right? If you're feeling selfish before you say the selfish word, bring that to God. Repent at that point before you do the damage. It's not that God can't redeem it afterwards, but, but let's try to avoid it, right? Let, let's try to avoid the, the dumb suffering. But here's the thing. Even when you do good, sometimes you're still going to suffer. And you can trust God with that suffering too. So what does it mean to, to do good and to suffer as a result? Well, in our context, I suppose it can take all kinds of forms, right? Sometimes you may love in ways that make certain people uncomfortable. And so they pressure you to stop. You may extend grace to people that other people think you're supposed to reject. And as a result, they may despise you for it. You might be in a situation where everyone around you is lying and they're pressing you to join in the lie. But you feel a conviction and so you speak truth. And you're abused for it. Sometimes it's after you've done something wrong and you're trying to make it right, man. Sometimes you do something wrong and, and, and you have this internal desire to hide it because you're ashamed, you're afraid of the consequences. Maybe there's even other people that want you to hide it because they don't want to deal with the consequences of the fallout that can come from it. But instead, you confess it. You bring it to the light. And you work through the hard process of, of working toward reconciliation, of, of actually bringing it to the light, Right? But there are going to be those who, as a result of that, may despise you for moving in the right direction because it makes them uncomfortable as you do, because it puts pressure on them in ways they don't like to feel pressure. Sometimes you're going to do good, and you're going to suffer for it. It's going to happen. And what ends up happening is people get ticked. They don't, they don't like you doing that good. They don't like the way it makes them look. They don't like the way it makes them feel. It doesn't, they don't like the way it threatens their view of the world or their understanding of security. And so what do they do? They, they try to manipulate you through persecution. Now, persecution is one of these huge words that we often associate with um, really big things, and it should be, right? ISIS. And their beheading of Christians. I mean, that is all over the news, and we're aware of the, of, of the threat, and, 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 um, and obviously it's a big deal, right? That's persecution, right? They persecute people. They bring suffering with the purpose of changing and manipulating behavior. That's why they do it, right? They're not just doing it randomly. They're doing it in such a way that they're trying to get people to change their actions, to change their beliefs, to change their allegiances, right? It's the application of discomfort to manipulate your fears. That's why they film it. That's why they push it out, because they know that, that even though they're directly impacting the lives of a few, the fear of what they're doing is going to impact many. And as a result, uh, as people become afraid, they actually start doing the very things that, that um, the persecutors are trying to manipulate you to do, right? Now, here's the thing. Persecution isn't, isn't just on that huge scale. Persecution takes place uh, on much smaller scales, right? Anytime somebody is manipulating your fears and, and seeking to bring discomfort into your life to get you to do what they want you to do, right? We're, we're experts in our culture at Facebook persecution, right? I mean, we really are. 
to bring discomfort, to make someone feel shame. In fact, we, we love public shaming. We really do, right? It used to be back in the day that, that you would take somebody that you wanted shamed and you'd take them into the town square and you'd stick them in the stocks. You know what I'm saying? Like, like this wooden thing where they'd have their hands locked in and their head locked in and people would walk by and throw rotten fruit at them. Right? Big heads of lettuce full of worms. And they'd laugh and they'd mock them and they'd make fun of them. Man, it's a good thing we're, we're more civilized than we used to be. Right? Good thing we don't do that stuff now. Right? Seriously. Is there a week that goes by that we don't find someone new to shame? To publicly mock? To publicly hold up and, and throw metaphorical fruit at? You know what I'm saying? Like, we love it. It's persecution. It's a way of manipulating. What we're trying to do when we are participating is we're trying to bring the application of discomfort to change behaviors. There are better ways to do it. I'm going to throw that out there. It's not that we shouldn't be addressing wrong behaviors, but Christians, I'm going to tell you something. That's the world's methodology, and it doesn't result in God's results. It doesn't result in in changed hearts or hearts freed by joy, or freed into love. It results in people um, pulling back their worst impulses and hiding them until they have the opportunity, and then they let them out in an explosive way, right? Shame is not God's motivation, and we shouldn't be involved in heaping shame on people, nor should we allow the shame that's heaped on us to manipulate and control our behavior, right? Peter is saying, look, when, when people do this to you, they're trying to manipulate your fear, They're trying to manipulate your fear, to control your behavior, to control your beliefs. But you have a better hope. Take a look at the end of verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then he follows it up immediately with, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now this is super insightful. If you have a better hope, it's going to free you from their fears. If you have a better hope, it's going to free you from their fears. When he says, have no fear of them, literally what he's saying is, is don't share their fear. Or don't be afraid of the same things they're afraid of. Just don't do it. Don't, 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 don't buy into their hopes that lead you to the same fears, right? Persecution happens when, when, when people think they know what we're afraid of, and so they try to manipulate it. They try to get in there. And, and, and so um, are you afraid? You know, do you value your, your, your reputation? Then we're going to slander you or we're going to put the threat out there of potentially slandering you because you're afraid of losing your reputation. You're afraid of looking bad, right? Do you value your wealth? Then, then we're going to threaten your ability to build capital. We're going we're to limit your ability to have opportunities, right? Uh, do you value your comfort? Well, then we're going to do our best to rob you of comfort. See, how do they know where to hurt you? How do, how do they know where to, to bring the discomfort? Well, they know because they know where they don't like to be hurt. And they assume you're the same. They have a, a certain set of hopes that drive them. And they assume you have the same hopes so Peter's solution is, hey, don't, don't be afraid of what they're afraid of. Don't share their fear. If you're not afraid of the same things they're afraid of, then their manipulations have no effect on you. I mean, it's really brilliant, right? If you're not afraid of what they fear, 
their intimidation and their persecution is powerless. Right? It's like Superman being threatened by bullets. Batman being threatened by the dark. It's just not going to work. Right? You, you, can't, you can't bring a, a fear to somebody who doesn't share the same fear. If you're not driven by their fears, you can't be manipulated by their persecution. It, and here's the thing, you guys. This only works if you realize that, you're, that, that, that you have a better hope. Because, I mean, the reality is, when we read this, it's like, okay, I get it, right? Don't share their fears. I shouldn't share their fears. I get it. But I'm not a superhero. I'm not Superman. On my best day, I try, but I still can't be Batman. Right? It's just not, not who I am. That's the problem. So how in the world am I not supposed to share their fears? Because I am afraid. I don't like to be slandered. I don't like to be insulted. I don't like to be made to feel stupid. I I don't like when my security or my comfort are threatened. I don't like it when, when, when I feel like I'm not in control. I don't like it. How am I not supposed to share their fears? The only way you're going to get there is if you realize that your fears grow out of your hopes. You can't change your fears, but you can refocus your hope. See, where you set your hope determines the boundaries of your fear. If your greatest hope is to be an athlete, like a great athlete, you're not going to be afraid of physical suffering, right? Somebody can show up and be like, give me 50 push-ups. And you're like, all right, I wonder if I can do 100. Right? For some of you, that would be like the worst thing in the world, have to do 50 push-ups in front of a group of people. Right? But if, you're, if your hope is to be a great athlete, you're not afraid of, of physical discomfort. Right? If, if, if your greatest hope is to be a scientist and someone threatens you, I will never let you take another humanities class again. No more poetry for you. And you're like, oh man, thank you. Right? That the fear doesn't matter. Your fears are driven by your hopes. When, when something gets in the way of your hope, that's when you become afraid. Because it feels like someone is, is, is getting in your way of gaining life. You set your hope in what you think is going to give you life. You set your hope in, in what you think is going to give you joy and freedom and strength and, and dignity and purpose. And when someone threatens your hope, that's when you become afraid because it feels like they're actually robbing you of life or they're threatening to rob you of life. See, this is why Peter reminds us that we have a different hope, right? In in verse 14, when he says, But if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Greek word for blessed is makarios. A word that is rich in meaning. See, blessed, man, we hear blessed, and it just sounds like one of those religious words. It's like, I don't know, something that would be hanging on a cross stitch in my grandma's house or something. It just doesn't mean a whole lot. It doesn't connect with us. But that Greek word, makarios, man, to be blessed means to, to have life and the fullness thereof. Like, like to have rich, vibrant, full life. Life with purpose, life with joy, 
Life with, 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 with adventure and security. Life with, with connection and independence, with growth and interdependence. It is, it is being connected to the prosperity and the fullness of life. When it says you will be blessed, he is talking about this is, this is exactly what you're looking for. This is what you're chasing. Here's the thing. Everybody, everybody's chasing it. Everybody. Believers, unbelievers, people of other religions, people of other cultures. Everybody's chasing this. Why do we live our life? Because we're trying to experience Makarios. Why do we make the choices we make? Because we believe those choices are going to lead us into a greater experience. It doesn't matter whether you're choosing to go party on the weekend or go be religious on the weekend. You're making the choices you make because you think when you make them, you're going to experience more of the fullness of life. This is the path that will lead me to greater joy. This is the path that will lead me to greater freedom. This is the path that will lead me to, to a deeper, more, more powerful, profound experience of, of, of the, the joy of, of the human life. We all want life and all of its richness. We all want life and the security of love. We all want life and the joy of abundance. We all want this. The question is, where are you placing your hope to get it? Where are you placing your hope to get it? Because you're putting your hope in something. We, we are insatiably addicted to hope. You're like, I'm the most pessimistic person on the face of the earth. You might be, but I guarantee you still hope in something. You can't live without hope. You're looking to something to give you what you desperately need. You have in front of you a pathway that you think will lead you into a deeper, richer, fuller experience of life. Where are you placing your hope? Here's the thing the world tells us that we find hope by building our own kingdoms. Especially the American version of this dream. We call it the American dream, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. This idea of the self-made man, the rugged individualist, the one who, who carves out his own identity, the one who marks his own boundaries, the one who builds his own kingdom, and the one who does it most successfully is the one who experiences the most life. The world tells you that you need to trust in the promises of money, or power, or influence, or fame. And the gospel comes in with a radically different invitation. The gospel invites us not to build our own kingdoms, but to rest in His. Not to trust in our abilities to accomplish, but to rest in His. It invites us not to trust ourselves, but to trust him and to rest in his promises. You guys, the challenge then is to not stop being afraid, right? The challenge isn't like, okay, I need to control my fear. The challenge is to recenter our hope. Because as we recenter our hope, it will redefine our fears. The right hope, a true hope, in something that doesn't disappoint, that actually fulfills, will free us from the kinds of fears that limit us, control us, harm us, and make us susceptible to manipulation. So how do we do that? How do we recenter our hope? Verse 15. But in your hearts, 
Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet doing it with gentleness and respect. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is really loaded, and I want to unpack this. Because when you first read it, it just sounds like a command, like go do this thing. And some of you are like, that doesn't sound very fun. I'd rather eat a brat, watch a game. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's just not, like, sanctify Christ as holy in your heart. Okay. I don't even know what that means. Like, go to church more? Pray more? I don't know. Stop doing bad things? Start doing good things? No, none of those things. Okay, if we hear this as a command that needs to be obeyed out of a religious impulse, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. We're going to misplace our hope. There are a lot of people that have their hope in religion, and they're just as disappointed as the people who have their hope in, in their money or, or, or in their success because it puts our confidence in ourselves. That's not what this verse is saying at all. All right, so there are three words here. It says, honor as holy. Those three words are actually the translation of a single word, hagiadzo, which means to set apart as holy or to consecrate to a sacred purpose. What he's saying is consecrate Jesus as holy in your heart. Consecrate Jesus as Lord in your heart. But Peter doesn't call him Jesus. Peter calls him Christ. And some of you are like, well, that's no big deal. He's just using his last name. Okay, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay? Jesus is his name. Right? That's his earthly name. Christ is his title. The the Greek word Christ means the anointed one. Right? And and, and in the Old Testament, man, there's this this rich uh, literature prophesying the anointed one, the Christ who would come, who would ultimately um, act as God's intercessor and Savior. He's saying, set apart Christ. Literally, the Christ. There's a definitive article in front of it. He's saying, sanctify the Christ as Lord. So what he's saying is take the anointed one, focus not just on who he is as a man, but focus on what he did as our Savior. Because he came as the anointed one to do what no man had ever done. And this title focuses us not just on who he is, but what he accomplished. Jesus did what no man ever did. He was born a human and, and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. I mean, remarkable. I mean, talk about a bummer being his brother, right? Always being compared. You know, it's hard enough being compared to a a sibling who's totally flawed. I mean, Jesus was like perfect, right? But that's the reality. And and as a result, people hated him. His own family despised him. People, you know, but he lived the life we should have lived. He obeyed in all the places we disobey. He honored God in all the places we dishonor God. He was centered always on God's kingdom instead of building his own. He lived the life we should have lived, and then he died the death we deserve to die. He went to the cross, not because of his offense against God, but because of ours. He became our substitute in judgment. He bore the weight of of our shame and our guilt and our rebellion against God dying in our place, not because he deserved it, but because we did. And he loved us enough to do it. And then he rose again. 
Having completely satisfied God in regard to our sin, he rose again. He, he took our penalty and death so that we could invite us, he could invite us into his blessing and resurrection. So, so listen to me, listen to me. When he says, sanctify the Christ as Lord, he's focusing your attention, not just as Jesus as an authority, not just as Jesus as a man, but, but as Jesus, the lover of your soul. Jesus, the one who, who did the unthinkable so you could receive the unattainable. Jesus, the one who didn't have to do any of this, but willingly did so you could be forgiven and made new. Sanctify the Christ. Consecrate the Christ as Lord in your heart. See, when we recognize Christ as Lord, we are giving him ultimate value and therefore giving him ultimate allegiance. To, to, to consecrate him as Lord in my heart means that I recognize that, that he has authority over my life. That he is the one who made life and understands the boundaries of life, right? He's the giver of blessings and he's the one who knows best how to experience those blessings. That God's good gifts come to us in Christ, not to limit us and keep us from life, but to deliver us more fully into it, right? We, we recognize his lordship as we recognize his authority, his sovereignty. Here's the thing, you guys. You're going to have a really hard time submitting to God if you don't see him as beautiful. You're just not going to be able to do it. You might become more religious. You might become more self-controlled, but, but it's not going to be out of genuine submission to God. It's going to be out of, out of prideful self-indulgence. There are a lot of very religious people who are very, very ugly people because they're doing it for their own glory and not in response to his. You can't just make yourself submit to God unless you see the beauty of God in Christ. When we see his love, that frees us to submit. Because he loved you so fully, you can submit to him completely. Because if you see him as Christ, you will gladly call him Lord. Now, let me give you an illustration. I moved to Southern California just before my senior year. I was not a believer, and I wasn't raised in a Christian home. But moving to Southern California, my mom was very nervous about the influences that I would be around because I'd already been in a ton of trouble coming through middle school. So she enrolled me in a Christian school. So I arrived in this Christian school in the late 80s with my skateboard, and, and I, it was culture shock for me. I did not understand these people, and they did not understand me. Right? I had never heard of Petra. I knew nothing of Michael W. Smith. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's okay, you're better off. Um, but there was a whole Christian subculture thing. They spoke a language. They listened to music. They, they even had Christian cuss words. It was the weirdest thing ever, right? I'm like, who is Gosh, and what do you want him to darn? I don't get it, right? They, they had their own ways of doing all this stuff that it was like this code that I didn't get. And so I was an outsider, and I got into a lot of trouble. Now, I was also a teenager and, and from a, a, a kind of a dysfunctional background, and, and so I brought a lot of anger in. And so as a result, I, I acted out a little bit here and there, um, causing trouble. Um, but it was always like, I mean, I wasn't burning the place down. I was just disrupting classes, right? I, I liked to ask questions that were derailing. I liked to, to, it wasn't that I was a class clown. It was more that I was just the thorn in the teacher's side, um, and it was my way of, of acting out. As a result, 
Um, I think people would have been glad if I just left. Um, there was a very specific incident. I remember I was in a computer class in the 80s. Yes, we had computer classes, um, like Apple IIe's or something like that. And, uh, and, and somebody had left a vulgarity on one of the screens, and um, they couldn't, it wasn't me. I'm, I'm, there's no reason to hide it. It wasn't me. Um, not that I wouldn't have, but I didn't. And, um, and they had nobody to blame. And so I remember the assistant principal calling me in and saying, Steve, you were in that room and that happened, and we can't prove it was you, but somebody has to be punished. Somebody has to be held accountable. And we think you did it. So I'm going to give you a week of work details, which was the Christian version of detention, I guess. I don't know. And, uh, and so I did these work details. And he's like, if you didn't do it, the good news is that this will accumulate in riches for you in heaven. Literally, that's the speech I got. Um, I was not happy. Uh, but here's the thing. In this dysfunctional mess, this is where I'm going with this. I'm like, good. Um, I had a teacher. His name was Dave Newell. He was an English teacher. And he was a guy that wasn't put off by my anger. He wasn't alienated by my questions. Um, he listened to what I had to say. He laughed with me. Um, when I didn't do his assignment, like, which was reading XYZ over here, but he found out I was reading ABC over here, he's like, he would change the assignment. Like, he was actually, like, inviting me, respecting me, knowing me, listening to me. And what ended up happening was that I came to really respect Mr. Newell. What's amazing, I still remember his name. I, I still remember his class. He was the English teacher. As some of you know, I, I went into English education. I was a teacher and then a principal for 17 years before the, before the Lord called me into this. And you know what happened? Because Mr. Newell's love for me, because he saw me and respected me and gave me a dignity that I wasn't receiving in other areas. I wanted to make him happy. I didn't cause problems in his class. Not like I did the other teachers. Right? I caused the fun kind of problems. The kind that I knew he would laugh at. Because here's the thing. Because I knew he loved me, I willingly submitted myself to his authority. When someone loves you, you submit yourself to them. Because you know you don't have to defend yourself. You know you don't have to prove yourself. You know you don't have to mark out and protect your own boundaries because when someone loves you, they're for you. And that's why love and submission always go hand in hand. Because you will submit yourself to what you know, to what you love and what you know loves you. One of the greatest battles you will have in your life, Christ follower, is to come to trust how deeply God loves you. Because you don't believe it. Like, no, dude, I get it. Sunday school lesson. Jesus died for me. Okay. But I'm telling you, you get it, but you don't get it. You believe it, but you don't believe it. There, there are layers of trust. And one of the greatest battles you're going to have in your Christian life, especially when suffering comes in, 
especially when things aren't going your way, especially when you do the right thing and the wrong thing results. One of the greatest battles you're going to have is to believe that God is for you and loves you. And that's when you need to fight. Not for yourself and not against God. That's when you need to fight to sanctify Jesus, the Christ, as Lord in your heart. To remind yourself continually of his love for you and his great promise to you. That you don't have a Savior who stands separated and apart from your suffering, one who can't identify with your pain. You have a Savior who entered into it, who walks with you in it, who is there eye to eye with you, and has promised to bring you out the other side. He has promised that there is a blessing, that life and the fullness thereof is in front of you, and he will deliver it to you. And there will be seasons, and there will be times when it's just not going to feel true. And it's in those seasons, in those times, that we need to most actively consecrate the Lord, Christ, as Lord in our hearts, to remind ourselves continually of his love for us, that he loved me before every rejection took place, and he'll love me when they're all done. That he loved me before I was mistreated, that he cherishes me and delights in me even as people despise me, and that he has a future of blessing for me even as people try to rob me of the fullness of life now. This is the true and great spiritual battle. Not to love God, but to know that you are deeply loved. So much so that even when it hurts, even when it doesn't make sense, you still trust, you still honor, you still submit because you know you're loved. When we're driven by this kind of hope, it frees us from the world's fears. When we're driven by this kind of hope, it allows us to stand up to the persecution in ways that is just mind-numbing to those who persecute. This is when you find Christians gladly going to death, singing praises to their Savior. When you see people losing their jobs, not because of what they've done wrong, but because of what they've done right, and yet still praising God. When you find people rejected and hurt by people they they thought they could trust, and instead of turning to despair and self-pity, instead turn to praise and gratitude and worship. Where you set your hope determines the boundaries of your fear. And there is no greater hope than to experience the love of God more deeply and more profoundly through the work of Jesus. And when we do, that's, that's, that's when people start asking us about the hope that's within us. That's when they'll be like, A plus B doesn't equal C, right? You should be really ticked right now. You should be really disappointed. You should be crushed. You should be manipulated right now, and you're not. What's going on? What kind of hope do you have? Because I want some of that. What kind of hope is driving you? Because there's a freedom there and a joy there, and, 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 and I want some of that. That's when they'll start asking, when they see how powerless their fear is. So you guys, let's push into this. Let's consecrate the Christ as Lord in our hearts. Let me pray for us. We're going to go into a time of response. We're going to share communion.
uh, in a moment. But first, I want to create some space for you just to pray and allow the Spirit to do what the Spirit does. Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. Father, I thank you that you're the great initiator, that you don't come to us with demands and commands looking for results. You instead initiate in love and then invite a response. You initiate in humility and then ask us to be undone in our pride. You initiate in joy and ask us to leave our fear behind. Spirit, I pray that you will make this invitation deafeningly loud. That we will simply crave the experience of your presence. That we will want to drink more deeply of that well. That we might be lit up more powerfully by that hope. And freed into the joy that comes from it. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.